Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, good morning. I say good morning. It's this afternoon for me. As ever, I was frog-marched up by my five-year-old at about five this morning, so I'm very late into my day. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'm staying as far away as possible from the woman dressed beautifully in the same M&S dress as me (laughs) because she wears it so much better. I'm going to hand you over any second now to wonderful Peter York... He has a twin personality. He's Peter Wallace and he's Peter York. But he is a guru. He is a commentator. He has written a rather wonderful essay in our new collection, Brand New Britain, which is liberally scattered about Engine, who are kindly hosting this morning's Thought for the Day with Anatole Koletsky and Bill Emmett. I will just say briefly that there are two points to these mornings. One is ideas and stimulation, and the other is networking. Happily for editorial intelligence, networking is no longer something that people either fear or feel embarrassed of. It is something people now embrace warmly, such as yourselves. So we're very happy to have you here. Uh, You are on the record, so please keep shtum if you don't want to be immortalised on podcast. And please duck out of Robin's way if you don't want to appear in any shape or form on camera. And with that warning, I hand you over to the very wonderful Peter. Thought for the day is when we hear what our betters are thinking... And then we have a chance to pile in there. All of you know the idea of the reference group, the group of people inside your head that you're constantly matching yourself against. And it used to be, what would Jesus do? But now there's a rather larger frame of reference groups. And some of you will be asking, what would Anatole or Bill do? What would they think in such a time as this? And that's what this is all about. Afterwards, you get to swing in. Now, in a time to come, the most important consumer good for high-end people will be the presence of live intellectuals as close as that. <laughs> but already, EI is bringing you that. Remember where you heard it first. Now. Our speakers, they're gorgeous, they're pouting, they're fantastic. And we're going to start with Anatole Koletsky. I first met Anatole in the 90s when I was doing a series about the 80s and we went to the Bank of England, where they, well, the bit of the bank where they print the stuff. And it was very, very thrilling. We talked about Thatcher's miracle. Um, now, Anatole writes for the Times comment pages on Thursdays. He was formerly its economics editor. He's now editor-at-large. I never know what that means, but perhaps you'll explain it. It's a lovely thing to be. And he's been 30 years, man and boy, at the job of being a full-time economics correspondent. You think, one, he deserves a day off. But as my taxi driver said this morning, because I was describing the fantastic backstory of our speakers, and he said... Yes, but has he got an ASBO? 
Um, topics, the baby boomer generation, tips on cost-cutting for the new government. And he's also, aren't we all, a consultant. He's a founding partner in something called GavCal Capital, which is a Hong Kong-based Hong Kong based economic advisor and asset management company. I'm going to ask you, Anatole, to tell us what's on your mind for five minutes. Well, I, I wasn't sure what to expect in, uh, at, at this breakfast, and I was told what's on my mind, Well, uh, which I didn't know that was even the subject we were supposed to discuss until this morning, and I'm afraid as I don't have a five-year-old to wake me up, the main thing that's on my mind is that I wish I was still in bed. Uh, but beyond that, I suppose uh, there, are t there are two uh, related issues on, on my mind. One is uh, how to sell the book that I've just written, uh, or how, how it's selling. I've, I'm, I'm feverishly go on Amazon every half hour or see, so to see whether it's gone up or down, you know, from number 2057 or to 2056 and so on. Uh, and the other is whether there's going to be a, a double-dip recession or whether the, the, the you know, world is recovering uh, from the crisis of the last three years. And uh, the two are related, uh, not only in the obvious way that, you know, if, if we go back into recessions, pretty hard to sell anything, as, as you pe people know uh, much better than I do, but it will be particularly difficult to sell a book uh, saying that the worst is over and looking forward to the sunlit uplands, which, uh, according to the book's original uh, publication schedule, were supposed to become visible precisely on the 1st of July this year, uh, because that, that, that's when the book came out. Uh, it was actually quite difficult to get it uh, published last year, uh, despite uh, what Peter's been kind enough to refer to as you know, my you know, long-standing uh, uh, career and reputation uh, as an economic journalist, because uh, when I conceived this book a year ago, and it was, as I say, about the post-crisis recovery in the world economy rather than what, what caused the crisis, uh, uh, the reaction I got from publishers was, well, this is very interesting, you've put forward a very good argument, good structure and so on, but how can you guarantee to us that by the time the book comes out in a year's time, the world economy really will be recovering? Uh, and I'm afraid the only answer I had to that is that through my consultancy business, I deal all the time with people who are betting uh, billions, if not tens of billions, on, on, on uh, the basis of such wages. And all I was asking these publishers for was a few thousand. But nevertheless, uh, they still found that uh, uh, risk very difficult to take. Now, the reason that I do believe that the world is coming up out of recession, and there, there won't be a double dip, uh, is you know when I sort of contract all the 400 pages, uh, is really es essentially very simple. Uh, what we've learned in the last uh, three years, or relearned, I think, is that government policy is incredibly powerful uh, in um, shaping at least the short to medium term uh, uh, events in the economy, and uh, and of and of course. That's a new lesson, or at least a relearned lesson, because for the previous 30 years, really since uh, Margaret Thatcher in 79, we were told uh, that government policy is 
at best ineffective and at worst unusually counterproductive in almost every, everything it attempts to do. And that was, of course, a complete reversal of the position for the previous 40 years, which was that government policy is omniscient and omnipotent and can always achieve uh, whatever it's, it's, it's aimed to do uh, and, in fact, is always going to do, uh, benignly uh, compensate for the failings of the markets, which was the view of the previous 40 years from the 1930s to the 1970s. So we were told that government uh, policy was not going to work, uh, that there was this enormous sort of deflationary sort of toad sitting on the, uh, on the uh, world economy, uh, the banking crisis, you know, the credit crunch, and nothing could be done to shift it. Uh, and my view actually was really from the immediate aftermath of Lehman, once the governments really did open the spigots and start to print money without limit, that that was going to work. And I think we are, we, we've clearly seen it work over the last year. There's been a fairly dramatic recovery in most parts of the world economy, not least here in London, where you've seen even property prices really shooting back up, almost uh, back to their peaks uh, of three years ago, not only in residential property, which most people are more aware of, but also in commercial property. Uh, And of course, that's picked up consumer confidence and so on and so forth. So that's working. That's begun to work. Uh, The question is whether it's going to continue to work. And and I think I'll I'll just stop on this. uh, in, an, in a period in a couple of years ahead where government policy is pulling in two different directions. For the last year, it's been pushing in the same direction. You've had public spending going like mad. You've had taxes basically stable actually coming down because incomes have come down, so people put less money, uh, pay less money to the Treasury. And at the same time, you've had ultra-low, effectively zero interest rates, also encouraging people to borrow and spend again. Uh, in the next couple of years, actually probably the next five to ten years, we're going to have policy moving, pulling in opposite directions. On the one hand, you're going to have governments retrenching, cutting back jobs, raising taxes. On the other hand, you've still got central banks, uh, at least with the ability to keep interest rates at zero for essentially as long as the eye can see, and print money without limit. That, incidentally, it's one of the themes of my book. It's one of the big changes that's occurred in the world economy over the last 30 years that people have noticed is that for the first time, for literally the first time in 5,000 years of recorded history, we're living in a world of pure paper money. It's interesting that Peter introduced me with this anecdote about seeing the Bank of England printing presses uh, rolling, because... It wasn't apparent at that time how significant that is. This is the first time that money is not related to gold or silver or cowrie shells or slaves or salt or anything like that. All over the world, governments can print money without limit. Essentially, the reason I believe that the world will not go into a a double-dip recession is that that is a more powerful force in the long run than anything else. Uh, The ability to print money and to issue loans at zero interest effectively is incredibly powerful in a a market economy. And the key, I think, to the continuation of growth uh, in this country and all over the world uh, uh, for the next five years, and this is the last point I'm going to make, is going to be that. And that will yield a a, a surprise to to many businesses and consumers, which I think um, people are not expecting. Interest rates are going to remain virtually at zero, not just for the next few months, 
not just for the next year or so, but I would, I, I would hazard to guess at least for the next five years, we're not going to see interest rates, certainly in this country, or indeed anywhere in the advanced world, above, let's say, one and a half or two percent. And that will create a completely different environment from anything that any of us have been used to. Mortgages of hundreds of thousands, even potentially millions of pounds, are suddenly going to look much less oppressive than they did over the last 10 years. Businesses which have had hurdle rates of 15, 20% before they would consider an investment are going to have to completely readjust their expectations. And if you you go into a finance director today and say, I've got this great idea for a new product or a new investment project, and I really think it could generate uh, a return of 6 or 7% over the next 20 years, you're not going to keep your job for very long in the present conditions. I think in the new conditions of what I call capitalism 4.0 in my book, that's going to be very different. When the cost of money is only 1% or 2% as opposed to 7 or 8%, uh, both consumers and businesses, I think, are going to have to adjust to the new reality. I think maybe I should stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. In a time to come, you'll be able to tell your grandchildren that you heard it here in July 2010 from Anatole, it's all going to be all right, it's going to be gorgeous and lovely, except for those of you who are sort of daily mail, money mail, telegraph type codgers who have two and six in the bank and want to get 10% on it. There are an awful lot of them, you know. Now, our next speaker is Bill Emmett, and amazingly enough, he's a bit on the economic side too. That doesn't condemn him to talking about economics. Um, He's also a great Asia specialist, starting off being a great Japan specialist. And I think when I first met him, when it was when I was first going to Japan, and it was very exciting to be told what to, to do and what to think. And his newest book is about the rivalries of Asia, the great economic powers of Asia, and it's a reminder to us all that there actually is a place called Japan, because you could have been forgiven for forgetting that there's a place called Japan, because we're obsessed with the two other places. You'll know, Bill, mainly, firstly, I suspect, as long-term, from 1993 to 2006, I think he was, editor of The Economist, but he's done lots of other things and written at least 99 books on other economic and Asian subjects. Bill. Well, thank you, Peter, um, and thanks for everyone being here. Um, I had... um three thoughts on my mind, um, helped, no doubt, by having to um, be able to come second and therefore think for a minute, um, unlike uh, uh, poor Anatole. Um, but uh, the, uh, the first thought um, I had um, came when uh, we were all introduced as gurus, and this reminded me of um, a fax that I got. And do you remember fax machines? Probably not. But um, I got a fax from uh, the now late Peter Drucker, um, when we in, we'd written in The Economist about um, him and others as management gurus, and he sent in his facts a sweet note saying that he um, had long been convinced that the main reason that he was called guru was because the word charlatan was too long for a newspaper headline. <laughs> so we should bear that in mind. 
Um, the second thought um, came on Monday um, when I got a telephone call from um, an Italian journalist. As you'll learn in a minute, I'm working on a book about Italy, um, which is why I got called by an Italian journalist from Il Sole, the, um, the uh, Italian equivalent of the FT. And this Italian journalist said she was doing a feature on how the iPad had changed the lives of many people. And she was calling me to ask me, how had the iPad changed my life? And for a moment, I considered lying um, and telling her all sorts of ways in it to change my life. And then I thought, I better be honest, I haven't got an iPad, I have to confess. So this was social death. The new social death was not having an iPad and not having um, a story about it, how it changed my life. So um, I want you all to tell me what I should have said if I'd lied. The third thought came also from um, Italy and is related um, to uh, what Anatole um, uh, has told you in the sense that it's about economics. Um, I think you are condemned to know that we are two economists sitting on a pink sofa um, and therefore well, I better be honest about this um, unlike with the iPad. But I was um, in the course of my research in Italy I was in Palermo, and I was having a breakfast, actually, with um, an economist. And the point of my book on Italy is to find positive things uh, about Italy that um, offer clues for how reforms could rescue Italy from the world of Silvio Berlusconi um, and from the current resignation and feeling of decline. And this um, professor from Palermo University, um, who I thought I was going to be talking to him about some Thing about public finances, he suddenly said he thought that one of the most positive things in Italy was that economists were now taken more seriously than before. And this made me think for a minute um, about whether the same would be true in Britain or in America or elsewhere. Um, would it be considered a positive thing if economists were more prominent? I think that um, we uh, know very well that we hate bankers, but I think a second group that we've tended to be hating uh, in the last few years has been economists um, for supposedly not having predicted um, what was going to happen and now for not knowing what to do to get out of it, uh, out of this crisis. Um, it uh, is in part a, a reflection of the wisdom of Lyndon Johnson um, who uh, memorably said um, and I've never been able to use this in a speech before, but I think I can to editorial intelligence. Um, he memorably said that giving a speech about economics was like pissing down your leg. It, it feels hot to you, but not to anyone else. Um, uh, but it's also, I think, um, to make it more serious for a second, a reflection of uh, the question of whether we expect too much from scientists or from so-called experts in every field. Uh, and this links also to today's story about the exoneration of climate change scientists at East Anglia. Um, one of the oddities, I think, about um, writing about economics and about the um, acres of newsprint that have been there saying, why did economics go wrong? Why didn't they tell us what was going to happen? Why didn't they know what to do the instant that, um, that Lehman Brothers went down? Um, is that it, it somehow expects economists to have certainty and expects us to be um, dealing with, as it were, scientific truths um, when 
two things matter about economics. One, that much of what people want to know about is about the future. Uh, and um, we just don't know about the future, just as climate change scientists who tell you what the sea level is going to be in 2050 um, should immediately be ignored, in my view. Um, and any economist who gives you a 40-year prediction about how big China's economy is going to be in 2050 should also be ignored um, from that point on. Um, but uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's partly because it's about the future, but also because I think what's generally forgotten about economics is that actually economics is about people. Uh, it's about humans, human behavior, psychology, how they react to incentives, how they make cho choices, how they make trade-offs, how they um, react to each other's choices, how when you add up um, six billion people's choices, what does it amount to uh, in a world economy? Um, and the thought that I want to leave you with is that if you think economics is essentially about um, a decimal point in a forecast about next year, or a question about what should, uh, whether the fiscal deficit should be cut by um, 50 billion pounds or 60 billion pounds, um, you're wrong. It's about humans and about their behavior and their reactions to um, the sort of incentives and opportunities that they have. Uh, and we as economists um, need always to remember that it's about psychology. The real explanation, I think, for the economic crisis of the last three years is psychological. Um, complacency and the assumption that um, the good times are always going to go on, and therefore that as individuals, as governments, as regulators, we based our assumptions on a continuation of the good times, and that then produced ultimately a psychological backlash. Now the question is, are we convinced that the bad time is going to go on forever? And I commend to you Anatole Kalecki and his optimism. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Now, you, as you said, people do feel slightly peculiar about economists and their related professions. And they're always saying, don't look back in anger, but every hour on the hour, the new government says that the last government absolutely and comprehensively and single-handedly buggered the economy. Who really did what? In a capsule. Whose you know, fault was it? Well, well one, that's politicians, not economists. <laughs> and politicians say these things. They do. Uh, they do. Um, uh, secondly, who did what? I think, uh, I think uh, um, Gordon Brown and, uh, and the, um, his successor at the Treasury should be blamed for uh, basically assuming that the good time was going to go on uh, and, the, and betting that they, wouldn't, uh, that they would go on by um, giving ourselves a bigger deficit going into this crisis than we should have been, but also believing what the city was telling them um, and, that, uh, uh, and believing what Alan Greenspan was telling them, which was that um, rational, self-interested bankers wouldn't make mistakes that would be disastrous.
Yeah, I, I needless to say, as we're two economists sitting on a, on a pink sofa, we've got to disagree on something. So, uh, no, I don't agree. I, I, I think that actually uh, the big mistake was not continuing to pump money out fast enough. I mean, I think basically, you know, they call it, it's this sort of old bicycle analogy that they always use uh, about European uh, federalism and so on, if the bicycle's not moving forward, it tips over. And that's very much uh, what a, a market economy is like. Another uh, metaphor that's often used is it's like an aircraft. You know, it's, if, if it keeps up minimum speed, it flies. If it goes below its stall speed, it goes straight from being... Uh, flying very slowly to crashing. Uh, and uh, what happened, I think, in 2007 was a recognition that maybe things had got a bit out of hand, they had to be tightened, you know, Northern Rock and so on, and that was basically coped with. The economy had fallen down to what is, was essentially its minimum stall speed. At that point, the governments had to throw absolutely everything into it, in my view, to keep it going, because clearly there was a, 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 a bigger danger than normal in the size of the uh, of, of the banking liabilities, consumer debts, and so on. So back in late 2007, early 2008, uh, governments, especially the, the American government, but to some extent the British one as well, had a choice. Do they throw everything at it at, it at that point with the hope of keeping the economy above its stall speed and, and, and continuing at least with some decent growth? Or do they allow the sort of natural forces of, uh, of the boom-bust cycle to take its place? Take their place. They decided to allow nature to take its course. Uh, the economy then slowed down, and once it slowed down below the stall speed, it collapsed, and the financial system collapsed. At that point, they threw everything at it. And the irony was that, of course, by uh, November 2008, when they threw everything at it, we were talking about trillions, potentially tens of trillions of dollars and pounds. Uh, if they had taken the same action a year earlier, we would probably have been talking of a few hundreds of billions uh, to be sufficient to uh, uh, guarantee the banks, uh, restore a decent level of consumer confidence, and so on and so forth. So I think the big mistake actually was allowing what could have been a fairly normal economic cycle to turn into this unprecedented financial calamity by holding back for too long, by worrying about moral hazard and so on, rather than, you know, the fact that there was a, a boom-bust cycle was, was perfectly normal. We've seen dozens of boom-bust cycles in the past. The reason this one was worse, I think, was not because the scale of the speculation was greater. There was actually more speculation in the, in the internet bubble uh, than there was <coughs> in the housing bubble. Um, but I think it was because uh, the policymakers stood back for too long. How do you feel about the Larry Elliott view in Fantasy Island? Fantasy, I don't know how many of you read Fantasy Island, um, it's, which was written, in effect, in 2006 yeah. and published in early 2007, which basically said that Mr. Blair had lured us into a set of completely amazing illusions about everything, particularly the economy, and that... It was all built to fail and was about to crash any time soon, which is not what I hear either of you saying. Well, I, re you're, I really like Larry and I re you know, respect him, but I, 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 I think he's completely wrong. But I can understand he's wrong uh, because it, 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 it really it, it comes back to, to what Bill was saying. It's, it's really your psychology. It's your ideological standpoint. You know, if you believe uh, that everything that has happened in Britain and actually all over the world uh, not just in the last 
five or seven years, but in the last 30 years, has been moving not just us as individuals, but the whole of humanity in completely the wrong direction, which is basically, I think, what Larry believes, then it's easy to argue that the whole thing was a fantasy. So, uh, if, but, but in order to believe that the last five years are a fantasy, this is the point I'd like to make, that the last five years were a kind of complete fantasy, you've really got to believe that everything, the whole kind of reform process that began in, 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 last, in the late 70s was, was a fantasy. Because if it had not been for the growth in property prices and consumer debt in uh, financial innovation uh, that we saw in the last that we saw culminating blowing up in the last few years if it had not been for that none of the Reforms, the free markets, you know, you know, what's crudely called the Thatcherism, but even sort of moderate forms of Thatcherism, you know, this industry, the growth of, of, of not just the finance, but all the other business services, communication, etc., none of that would have happened. So we would still be back in a world where the commanding heights of the economy were coal, steel building, and, and uh, coal shipbuilding and steel. If you believe that that is a fundamentally more solid and healthier, not just economy and society, which is basically what I think Larry believes, where people work with their hands at factories, then we're living in a fantasy island. If you believe that actually a fundamentally not just more prosperous but more stable and better society is one where people work with their brains, uh, then then obviously we are living in a froth economy, and that's desirable, and the more froth, the better. It comes back a bit to... um the simple question, how much is too much? And that's really what um, you can't answer. And one of the problems with um, economic policy making is that you only know once, um, once it's bitten you, um, to mix the metaphor. Um, and uh, uh, this is why I would, uh, I would disagree a bit with, with Anatole, that, um, uh, since we're supposed to disagree. Uh, I think that uh, policy makers are not om- omniscient. Um, and uh, they don't really know how much is too much until suddenly it becomes too much and they have to do something about it. Um, um, and with high, even in 2007, I don't think that they knew what was going to be the psychology of the crash of Lehman Brothers. Um, they couldn't know that. And similarly, the fantasy island argument uh, um, requires them to, all, to have some great knowledge of how much debt is too much. So Larry Elliott, darling old sentimentalist, darling old Guardian person who wants people to stream out of factory gates on bicycles. Anyway, economics is about people. I can remember Andrew Schoenfield saying that about 100 years ago, people, social psychology, you're all people and you're sitting on pink sofas and you will have views and perk up with them because if you don't, I'll pick on you. Um, Christine Armstrong from Penshone, Berlin. Uh, Anton, I really want to believe you, um, but I, I spent part of my childhood in Zimbabwe, and I guess it goes back to what's too much, and at what point does printing money not answer, not solve the problem? I think the answer is very simple. Um, when it starts to, when it, when it causes inflation, when you see prices and wages starting to go up, and I think we're nowhere near that. The problem is the opposite. And interestingly, here I disagree. We weren't anywhere near that in 2007. There was one thing that was inflating, which was house prices. Everything else was stable. So, you know, which is why I think actually they should have just thrown more money at the problem. 
until it causes inflation. Uh, and uh, you know, one, one, of, one of the big changes in the last 10 years is you've had you know, both technology, Chinese labor, and so on, which has kept inflation down. And as a result, I think you can afford to uh, keep throwing money at it. And we, you know, we're not going to be in a Zimbabwe situation, at least for many, many years. I agree with that. Um, we're basically deflation is the problem. The real question is whether um, throwing money at it will turn out to be pushing on a string, yeah, as, as, as Keynes said. It may not work, but yeah. um, there's no problem with them. We're not Robert Mugabe. Hello, uh, Tom Maddox from Media Training Associates. Um, glad to hear that there's not going to be a, a double dip um, recession. I just wondered, given that we all know in the next year or two there are going to be huge numbers of public sector job cuts uh, and massive cuts which will impact on the private sector as well, um, how long do you think it's going to take, both of you, before the private sector uh, creates lots of jobs to replace all those that are lost, and, and what do you think is going to happen to uh, unemployment and perhaps uh, social stability in the interim? Uh, well, first of all, you didn't hear there's not going to be a double-dip recession. You heard that I think there's not going to be a double-dip recession, <laughs> which is very, very, very different. Uh, the, um, no, I, I, well, I, I think that that's the, the, the critical question. Uh, I, I must say I'm more worried about a double-dip recession now than I was uh, even a month ago because of the reason you've given. I, I think the government is is going to be too aggressive in, 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 in those cuts. I think there is a need to get public uh, deficits and debts under control, but it's not the kind of emergency that uh, has been presented to us uh, by the government. Uh, and, and, and in fact, it would be much better to have a coherent, slow and steady long-term program, which would actually be aiming at uh, you know, what's really causing the, 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 the uh, uh, potential uh, bankruptcy of the state, which is uh, health and pensions, rather than uh, you know cutting school building or whatever. So that's one. Uh, but but having said that, uh, I think the crucial question is you know when will the private sector come back? And it really comes uh, returns to what I was saying in my introduction. Uh, this program will work if the private sector begins to respond to very low interest rates. Uh, I think we're almost on, or we were almost on the cusp of that. Now there's been a bit of a collapse in confidence again. I think if people become convinced that interest rates are going to stay low, as I said, not just for the next few months, but say at least for the next five years, as I said, we're not going to see interest rates above 2%, uh, I think the, pub, the private sector would start to kick in. Uh, but that's purely an opinion. I would agree with it. I think. Um, uh, the private sector will be stimulated by low interest rates, also by export opportunities. Um, a, a great surprise has been the strength of the German economy, um, since they were the original um, nasty, austere budget people. Um, and uh, we were all thinking that uh, basically uh, around Germany there would be um, a permanent depression in Europe. And German, German uh, industry seems to be booming at the moment. Um, now that's but basically because we are in an open world um, and you can export to, um, to China or to, uh, to India or to Indonesia or whatever. Um, and so our hope has to be partly the same, that, uh, that in an open trading world, the opportunities for our companies in goods or services uh, will be enough to, um, to make them invest. I'd be surprised if they create enough jobs to actually get the unemployment rate going down very much, but I wouldn't be surprised if it roughly matches my name is Stephanie Sprague. I just have a question. Will low interest rates be enough to prevent a double dip? 
or will do you see these central banks resorting to quantitative easing? Do you see the Bank of England, for instance, raising its target again? Will low interest rates be enough? It, it seems like it really hasn't been enough, certainly not in the U.S. They've had to pump an enormous amount, and I'm just wondering if you think Bank of England will have to resort to another round of QE. Can I, I can answer that very quickly. Yeah, I, I didn't want to go into a sort of complicated seminar on monetary policy. No, I completely, when I say low interest rates, uh, I think it, it'll have to be a broader monetary expansion and, and which will consist of uh, what's called quantitative easing, which is basically uh, the Bank of England buying up debts from the government but with a view to doing what, I, what, what I've said, which is keeping interest rates down not only in the short overnight level, but keeping down five-year, ten-year rates so that, for example, people will go out and be able to get five-year mortgages at 2% as well as uh, short-term mortgages at 2%. I think when we have that, and when that happens in the U.S., and you know, when a 30-year mortgage is 3% rather than 5.5%, I think it will begin to get some traction. But I think it will need more quantitative easing. The one good thing about, um, about the over-austere budget, which I agree with Anatole, is that that means the Bank of England can feel perfectly happy about doing this. When there was a country called Japan, they had very low interest rates for a very long time, and a lot of good it did them. Um, Lady in Grey here. Yes, Fenella Gentleman from Grosvenor. Um, I'm interested in uh, what you think this will do for attitudes to uh, investment and short or long-termism. Um, Anatole talked about um, it all being to do with how people think and how they make their decisions, uh, and particularly the impact of low interest rates. And um, you, Bill, talked about it all being reminders us that it's all about human behaviour. So what's going to happen to the balance between doing things for a quick fast back and doing things because it will pay off in 20 years time? My answer is I don't know but I think that uh, uh, it does depend on, the, on a sense of optimism about where the economy is going which means the world since uh, people making these long term investments will very rarely do so with only Britain in mind because uh, it's perhaps these days, betting on one economy is, uh, is, is, uh, is uh, depending on the field, of course, but is, is very often, as it were, a form of recklessness. Um, if, you, if you have a wider market, then, then you, will, uh, you will take a, a stronger view. I think very low interest rates help, um, but uh, in the end, it's going to depend on your confidence about future policy, about future spending behavior, about other, what other, other business people are going to do, what people in your networking breakfast say to you, um, and whether they feel confident or not. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very hard to predict in advance. The case of Japan, by the way, is that um, they weren't that bad. Um, uh, they <laughs> have had recoveries. It's just it, compared with the Japan that we used to know and, um, and uh, revere, in the 1970s and 1980s, they've had a pretty bad time. Um, but uh, they have had growth, and they've never had unemployment higher than 5%. Um, so they were investing, but uh, they, they did keep on um, tightening rather quickly. Uh, and they never did proper bank monetary policy um, of the sort that Anatole's describing. Uh, but in the end, place your bets. 
Well, could I, could I just add something on that, uh, you know, with a, very much a sort of economist uh, theory hat on? I think there is a more specific answer uh, than the one Bill gave, at least, that you would get in an economics lesson to that particular question, which is that uh, if the discount rate is dramatically lower in the, in, uh, in the future, in other words, the interest rate is dramatically lower in the future, then actually it will, it, it, it should, if, if economics has anything useful to say about the world at all, which is a big if, uh, but it really should dramatically change the attitude to long-term rather than short-term thinking. Uh, with an interest rate of 10 or 15%, anything that happens beyond a three-year time horizon is literally worthless. It's irrelevant because uh, you know, by that time, you know, an income in five or ten years' time means nothing if the current interest rate is 10 or 15 percent. With an interest rate of two or three percent, the long term becomes much, much more valuable. And I think in issues like climate change, uh, as some of you may know, that was actually the key criticism, the key issue in the criticism of the Stern report from the climate change skeptics was that he was using a discount rate that was too low. In other words, he was valuing the, the uh, prosperity of future generations at a much too high a level uh, for a world in which interest rates are 5 10%, and therefore it doesn't really matter what happens in 50 years' time. In a world of 2 or 3% interest rates, the next generation matters uh, from a kind of moral and ethical standpoint, but also from a business standpoint, a steady income stream that runs for 30 or 40 years becomes incredibly valuable in a world of, of low in, uh, interest rates, whereas a quick buck is what's valuable in a world of, of high interest rates. I think you'd probably agree with that, yeah? yeah? Now, we're getting dangerously close to rational, and somebody will say something like backward-sloping demand curve soon, on a, and then we'll all be upset. I, I want a, a jacuse from somebody. Uh, my name is Octavius Black. I'm from the Mind Gym. We're a firm of psychologists. Glad to hear Bill talk about the world of psychology. And Anatole obviously talks a lot about the world of low interest rates. And I was wondering whether your views on what this means for the psychology of saving and whether people in the future are going to decide that saving is for losers, that spending is the new saving, and that we're going to have less and less of a balanced economy where people are protecting themselves for the future and therefore more debt occurring as a result. Well, I think in Britain people are going to be saving more. They're probably not going to be saving a huge amount more, but they are saving more because they're some of the anchors that um, allowed them to be big spenders in the past, which was a certainty about the value of their house as they saw, or a certainty about the security of their pension um, as they saw it, have been shaken. But they haven't been destroyed. Um, so I think particularly with low interest rates and so forth, the rewards for saving are not high, but the precautionary motives for saving um, have increased a bit with the shock of the last uh, three years. So I would say in, in the specific case of Britain, where we really did become spenders um, uh, and credit card maxers, uh, that there's a bit of an adjustment back. And I think that will last, but don't go overboard. We're not going to suddenly, um, suddenly uh, start building mutual societies and, um, and uh, and uh, be counting pennies and um, writing self-help books about saving. Uh, 
But I, I think that's a very good distinction that the bill's drawn between the, the precautionary motives for saving and the rewards for savings, and, and as I completely agree. Uh, the, the fear motive for saving is much greater, and I think will continue to be at least for the next five years, if, and possibly for a whole generation, because you know, pensions are not going to be paid, health is going to be partly privatized, I'm, I'm confident, over the next 20 years, and so on and so forth. So the fear uh, reasons for saving are going to be much greater, but that is the very, but that's the very reason why actually the rewards for savings are going to be less and ought to be less, because the problem for the British economy right now, and it is a completely different problem today from what it, from what it was five years ago, the big problem for the British economy today and for the US economy is that people are saving too much. And particularly, and even more than people, companies are saving too much. Not many people realize this, but the, bank, the near bankruptcy of all our governments all over the world and the unprecedented deficits that all our governments all over the world are now facing are almost exactly matched by unprecedented wealth of our companies. Uh, Non-financial companies in Britain today have a financial surplus, as it's called, just cash flow, extra cash flow coming in, almost equivalent to the deficit of the government. Uh, equivalent to the largest surpluses the Japanese companies ran up in the, in the mid-90s when they were hoarding cash like mad. So the problem today is that people, and particularly companies, are saving too much, and therefore the rewards for that saving are going to have to diminish. Yeah, companies are the, are the question. And that's what happened in Japan, as Anatole said. Hi, my from Newham. One thing that's been absent from the discussion this morning is any spatial dimension. We haven't actually talked about place. It goes to me in the United Kingdom, there are two countries. One is London, yeah, which you might well have been talking about, which will buck any economic trend. And then there's the rest. And in the rest, in provincial towns and cities, some of those haven't actually recovered from, you know, the, you know recessions, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And many of those towns and cities are dependent probably to the degree of 50% being employed in the public sector. What's going to happen to them? I think that, that, that's a great question, and it goes back to the, the point, rather sort of dismissive, my rather dismissive uh, response to, to the, you know, the arguments of Larry Elliott and Fantasy Island and so on, because actually it is true that uh, I think for roughly half this country, the changes of the last 30 years have been extraordinarily beneficial, half both in class terms, but also, as you say, in geographic terms. For the other half of the country, actually, they have been pretty disastrous. Uh, and actually, I think there are many people you know, in, in that half of the country who do believe that uh, actually they, their families, their, their communities were generally better off 30 years ago than they are today. Uh, so, so, so I think that, that that's a very valid point. Uh, and where we've got to now is, as you've said, they're dependent entirely on the government, or very largely on the government, because of the decline of these traditional industries that I rather, uh, you know, mocked. Uh, so what's going to happen to them? Uh, I, I, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's a huge challenge, because uh, government spending is going to be cut. That's without question. These regions are not going to respond very strongly to the kind of financial monetary incentives that I've talked about. And so, you know, potentially in Britain we do have, you know, a microcosm of what's going on in Europe today with um, southern Europe, Greece, Spain and so on in crisis while Germany is prosperous. Uh, we have avoided 
the sort of financial uh, uh, instability that we've now seen in Europe, because Britain being a single unitary nation state, we have a natural system of recycling capital from the rich countries to the rich parts of the country to the poor. But actually, we are now in the process of cutting that off, or at least cutting that down. Uh, so, so I think basically, I don't have an answer, but I think you've put your finger on what on, on what will be one of the one of the uh, biggest issues of the next decade. I would only I disagree that the public sector is the big part of the problem. Um, I think if you look at, a lot of, at the time of the budget, a lot of newspapers carried um, surveys of where the, which areas of the country, and I mean areas as opposed to individual, very small play, locations. Um, uh, and actually, the public sector is much more broadly spread than our prejudice says. Um, and we think Scotland's basically a dependency, um, and it's it, uh, if, when you look at the, the, the data, it just doesn't defend, it doesn't um, support that. What is clear is that um, parts of the country are a lot poorer than other parts, uh, and I don't think that the the sense that they're going to be hit by the budget is is going to be the important thing. It's a pre-existing problem of inequality, and a pre-existing problem of of uh, large areas of, of uh, like hopelessness um, that is just going to become more, more apparent to us, I hope, um, uh, as, we, as we go through this, this, this period. Um, but I, I actually don't think it'll be a new creation of the budget cuts principally. Of course, that will make it worse, but um, it's, a, it's largely a pre-existing problem, I think. Well, out there in places none of you have ever been to, towns in the UK none of you have ever been to, places where they don't even have, I don't know, a patisserie Valerie or a Café Rouge or anything, are entirely supported on the public purse, in effect. Um, and if the cuts are effectively what we've heard about, what will happen to them? Maybe they'll just have to be plastered over. Anyway, you will know, you heard it here first, you heard it all here first. You'll be able to go into your star-crossed factories, your lovely high-tech offices, wherever it is you work, and say, I heard that. And if some of you are new to this wonderment, and you want to have it in your lives, just ask the authorities, because it can be yours only remains for me to say thank you very much indeed, Anatole and Bill, for getting us going so early in the morning.